people who do construction, contractors in particular, are aware of such a thing that is called a change order. When you first design a house, you draw the blueprints and you make a proposal to the person wanting to build the home. When you begin construction, all of a sudden you realize the countertops that the buyer has ordered are out of order. And now you have to find an alternative, a new countertop that is more expensive. And due to that fact, you now have to draw a change order proposition because the initial cost that you have proposed and have been signed and accepted by the buyer has been modified. And so you purchase the new, more expensive countertops only to find out that the soil where the house is supposed to be built is contaminated. And you have to bring in experts and decontamination of the soil, which jacks up the price even higher. So you have to draw a new change order with the new updated price. See, God gave us his initial proposal to Adam. He said, do this, don't do that. If you stick to the plan, all will be well. But then, as history tells us, Adam did not stick to the plan. Adam sinned. He caused a change order. He deviated from the original proposal. And therefore, God had to draw a new proposal, a change order. Or the price that the buyer had to pay now in order to facilitate the house is more expensive. Now, not only you have to pay for the building of the home, you also have to decontaminate the soil. And not only you have to decontaminate the soil, you also have to replace the roof, replace the mind, replace the heart, you have to clean your soul, you have to rewrite Torah on your heart. It is a change order with a higher price, but the house was and still is the end goal. God is building a house, not by bricks and mortar, but by the souls of men created in his image to be in his likeness, meaning in his character, to duplicate and mirror him. That is what Adam was. He was created holy. Everything we are studying now, Adam already knew, naturally. He didn't need to do yeshiva. 
He didn't have to have a Bible study. He already knew those things. His problem was that he got cocky, arrogant, prideful. He loved himself too much and saw himself higher than he really was. And then, because he did not keep the one and most important commandment of you shall love the Lord your God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy might, he listened to a lesser voice that told him, if you eat this, you will be just like God. See, it's not enough to be in the image of God. He wanted to be God. So he broke four other commandments. He broke the commandment of I am yud hei vav hei your God. He broke the commandment of You shall have no other gods before me, in that he himself attempted to become God. And then he also broke the commandment of You shall not covet, because he coveted the position and the knowledge of God, which led him then to break the commandment of You shall not steal, by stealing from God's private stash from the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And that is the unforetold story of Adam. Don't feel bad for him. He knew what he was doing. Adam was no fool. He was a perfect man created in the image of God. He was much wiser and more aware than us. Obviously, he was deceived because that was a lie, but he chose to believe that lie because love for the Father was not found in him. He was prideful, and pride, as we know, comes before a fall. In this case, the fall of man. Nevertheless, God's plan remains unchanged. He still wants a house, and God's word does not return to him void. Only this time, it will take longer, will cost more, and will require more work, more foremen, more construction workers. But the house will be built. And we know in Second Samuel chapter 7, I believe, when God talks to David and he said, Your son will build a temple for me. He will be my son, I will be his father, and his kingdom will have no end. Obviously, he's not talking about Solomon, because Solomon's kingdom ended and Solomon was not faithful to God and was not a son to him, but he's talking about Yeshua, Messiah ben David, who has started building his temple in his first coming, when he gathered disciples for himself and granted them the gift of forgiveness from sins and the presence of the Holy Spirit that writes Torah on our hearts in an attempt to reconstruct us in his image, just like Adam was. Except Adam was born this way, and we have to become that way. Nevertheless, the construction has begun 2,000 years ago. And as Yeshua told the Pharisees, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. And they replied, three days? It took us 46 years to build this temple, and you say you will rebuild it in three days? Obviously, they did not know he was talking about himself, as he was going to die and resurrect in three days. But little did you know 
that he was also talking about the temple of God that he is building in three days, three millennial days, as we know that a thousand years is as a day unto the Lord. He started two thousand years ago and will complete in a thousand years at the end of the millennial age. The whole purpose of the millennial age is to write Torah on our heart so that we can be a living stone in the temple of God. A temple, like I said, not of brick and mortar, but of the souls of men. And much, much like in the temple of Solomon, as soon as it was completed, they had a dedication and the Shekinah glory, the Spirit of God descended to be with the people in the temple of Yeshua at the end of the millennial, when the temple is complete and we all have Torah on our heart, the new Jerusalem comes down and the Spirit of God will come and dwell with his people. We are the temple of the Lord, not the building that we are trying to reconstruct in Jerusalem. No, we're past that. That was an image, that was the blueprint, the foreshadow. This whole life is a foreshadow of the life to come. This was never the end goal. This is just a simulation, the training program. You don't just send someone to space unless they had hours upon hours upon hours of simulations. God wants to test you. You know, Adam was tempted by the devil or the serpent, but he was really tested by God. Who do you think sent the serpent? Who do you think allowed it to happen? Nothing happens unless God ordains it. Who told Satan, have you seen my servant Job? There is no one like him in the whole land. And who tested the Israelites 40 years in the desert? God tests the heart. He tested Abraham. Where Adam fell, Abraham succeeded. Adam preferred the gift over the giver. He chose to listen to Eve instead of God. Whereas Abraham chose God over his son Isaac, which was a gift from God. In the same way, Yeshua, when was tempted by the devil in the desert, said, I don't want your kingdom. I only worship the Lord Almighty. I don't want anything from you. Away with you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. God tests the heart. The whole purpose of this life here on earth is the refining and building of your character. God wants to see who you are. What are you really made of? Who would give you a lot before you are tested with a little? Because whatever you do with a little, you will do with a lot. If you don't tithe unto God when you have a dollar, why would you tithe unto him when you have a billion? It doesn't make sense. It's the principle. If you're stingy with a little, you will most definitely be stingy with a lot. Yet, if you're generous with a little, you will most definitely be generous with a lot. Train up a child in the way he should go, and as he grow old, he will not depart from it. This whole life is our child phase. We haven't been transformed yet. We are not in our glorified, resurrected body. 
that comes next in the future, in the age to come, all eternity. Remember, we are created in God's image. God thought the world into existence. We have the same power. As a man thinketh, so he is. But before God unleashes that power in us, he put us in a vehicle of flesh to see, well, you want to create something? Let's see what you do with a little. You have two hands, two feet, one mouth, one nose, two ears. Let's see what you'd make of it. Let's see if you're even faithful, if you even love me, if you even want to spend time with me. Because again, if you don't if you do not want to spend the little time you have with God, why would you spend eternity with him? It's all the same principle. God is teaching us spiritual principles by giving us physical examples. But the only way you can understand it is if you take your eyes off yourself and put them on God. The whole purpose of the Torah, you know, the Torah was not created at Mount Sinai, it always was. The Torah is the word of God. God is the word. The word is. The word was with God and the word is God because the word is the character of God. God is. He simply is. The word is a reflection of him. If God had a dating profile, that would be his description. The word, the Torah, that's his character. Selfless love. Endless, infinite love. That is what Yeshua was. He was the living Torah. The image of the character of God in the human form. So, back to the point, God is building an everlasting home. He wants to dwell with us, in us. But we have to be willing and we have to be holy. Love is not unconditional. That's not what it means when you say unconditional love. No. He loves you unconditionally, yes. But he does not accept you unconditionally. If you want to be with him, he has very strict rules. You must be holy as he is holy. You must sanctify yourself. You must be in the world, but not of the world. You must purify yourself and leave Babylon, which is the spiritual system of the world. Finances, politics, economics, sports, music, Hollywood. You name it. Anything of this world is not of God. You cannot say you love God and love the world. It's impossible. The world hates God. How can you love someone that hates the one you love most? If I hate your wife, whom you love above all things, how can you love me? It's a lie. You cannot love God and the world. Friendship with the world means enmity with God. You have to make the choice. This world is ending. The matrix is shutting down. It's over. God has had enough. It's time to move on to something bigger and better. Question is, do you want to be a part of it? But remember, a part of it does not mean you just, keep, you just get to keep doing what you're doing now. No. It means you are with God. That's the whole purpose of life, relationship with God. 
If you do not talk to him, you do not seek him, you do not pray to him, you do not meditate on him, you do not worship him, love him, then why would you want eternal life with him? It doesn't make sense. It's a lie. So make up your mind. But know this. God is, and you're not. You are but a... <sighs> you hear that? <sighs> That's you. Here today, gone tomorrow. So if you want God, go ahead. But if you don't, that's okay. We will forget you ever have existed. Hallelujah. Rabbi Guy, in a previous podcast, talked about God's change order and very eloquently laid out the case for change and the cost that's paid for change and a rather exorbitant cost when someone has not started it right, when you have to unring the bell of construction and go back. And now it's going to be more expensive to fix it than it was to build it. But you've already gone far down that line. You've invested so much. You're willing to pay that extra added cost because you had a vision, you had a dream, and you'll be darned if you let it in because some contractor ruined it in the beginning. Now you're willing to pay that price. And maybe you'll sue the contractor to redeem that price that you've lost. Or maybe you'll just write it off, suck it up, and put in that extra, extra, extra effort to redeem your vision, to redeem your creation, to repair it, to restore it, to bring it back to life. As God did with Adam. Isn't it possible to understand that we are similarly, as Rabbi Guy said, he did not have to become, we do. Adam came with all parts included, software already programmed, already hardwired to follow and then got lifted up and distracted you know when your father gave you that first car then you got rebellious and forgot it was the giver of the gift and not the gift and then you put the gift first or when you started dating and you finally was allowed to have a girlfriend then you made her your boss and forgot about your father and mother. Made the person who is not the person of you become the owner of you. You chose something lesser over something greater. Got distracted now. Got so caught up with the gifts your spouse has given you. The house that they bought for you the mortgage they pay, the fact that you don't have to work because he busts his butt to make that money to take care of you so you can stay home and raise the kids, which is a job in and of itself, so that both of you don't have to run 
out from one business to another while strangers watch your children. So the father makes the sacrifice. But when he comes home, is there a dinner on the table for him? Is there a kiss? Is there a welcome? No. Yes, you have to raise the children, but you don't have to face the world. There's a little difference. Your children are not your enemy. But that man faces the world every day. And then you nag and pick and poke, prying at him. He has to face that, and he's willing to do that, by the way. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. He does it lovingly for the wife that's at home that he gets to come home to, for the children. But you make it twice as hard to keep that man energized and excited. Why? Because you get distracted, as Adam got distracted. One, by your own glory, your title, your position. Now you think you're bigger to God because you made $200 million. Now you think you're bigger to God because you live in a secluded community, gated in a mansion. Now you think you're bigger than God, bigger than the rabbi that teaches Torah. Think that you're better than the pastor or your priest your mother or your father because you went to Stanford or Oxford or Cambridge or Yale. Now you think you're smarter just because some person who did not raise you told you so. While you throw your nose and your thumb up at your father and your mother who gave you life, who taught you first one plus one is two before E equals MC squared. Isn't that interesting? And so he got distracted, lifted up in himself by his own beauty and glory, knowledge that was already born a genius and the gift of the woman. So he said nothing. But that was the man that was first walking with God. You've forsaken your first love. But God in his infinite wisdom and love reached out to give us a pathway back. He made a plan for us to pay a debt that we'll never be able to pay, but just so that we would prove that we acknowledge that we have a debt to pay and we make the effort. And he goes the rest of the way to fulfill that loan, to fulfill that cost. He still pays the price that we can never pay. We're so far gone in debt. We're so far gone with that tax bill. He figures out a way to erase that debt, to exonerate you of that debt. to give us an opportunity, as Rabbi Guy has said, to return and to be tested. We test everything, but we poke, we resist. We yell at God when he tests us. Is he not allowed to test that which he loves, to prove that? And that obedience that comes from love because you can obey seemingly the rules without love. But if you love, you will obey. A lot of people do what you ask them to do, begrudgingly, hatefully, with an attitude. But when you love the person, those same tasks are done with love, compassion, joy, excitement. And in fact, you couldn't ask enough of them. They couldn't give enough. They couldn't love enough. They couldn't say enough. They couldn't visit enough. They don't do the obligatory. 
they do beyond the unimaginable because it's motivated by love. They're not looking at how little, they're looking at how much more. But remember in this world, you will have tribulation. As Rabbi Guy said, you cannot be a friend of God and a friend of this world. He is right. And you will be hated. I hope we didn't forget to make that point. When you call out sin in your company, people that work for their sexual immorality, their stealing, their embezzlement, they're going to come at you. John the Baptist got his head cut off for that. Jeremiah got put in stocks for that. The prophet got put in jail for that while the king went to battle, trying to prevent that prophecy from being fulfilled. When you speak against those in power, those in wickedness, those in sin, they will come at you. Jezebel, they will come at you. I've spoken my entire life against sin. The places where I've worked, they've come after me. They've listened to my podcast and heard the things I've said, and they've hated me for it. They've come after me. It is a price you pay when you speak out against wickedness, where you work. They demote you, and ultimately they fire you if they don't kill you. They'll do whatever they can because of the consciousness that's convicted by righteousness, by your presence or by your words. Are you willing to pay the price? It's not gonna be easy. It's gonna be rough. You might be put in a dungeon for a while. You might be left homeless and friendless. Are you willing to pay the price? And it's not just the enemies of the world. David said, where was I wounded but in the house of my friend? Job experienced it all the time. Those who say they love God, they'll come with their remedies thinking to correct you, destroy you, deconstruct you. When they are so much less than you, are you willing to go through that, endure it, and wait for your change to come? Hang in there. I don't want you to forget in the end that there is a price to pay, not just a reward for serving Hashem, Adonai, God, but when you turn to God, you turn away from the world, but the world doesn't go away. It is there, and it's not going to take that laying down. It will attack. It will attack because your righteous stand offends them. When Job was attacked by the enemy and lost everything in his house, his own personal holocaust, and had his own wife tell him to curse God and die. He did not. He stood his ground and said, do we accept the good and not the bad? Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. And his attacks, where was I wounded but in the house of my friends? Wasn't just the enemy of the world around him. It was his very friends. They didn't come to comfort him, to heal his wounds. They came to dissect him and critique him, to figure out you must have done something wrong. There's a price to pay when you stand for God. When you decide to be a friend of God, you're deciding to be an enemy to something else, and that's the enemy of God, which is the enemy of the world. David said, I hate those who hate thee, O God. Well, they hate you for loving God. You'll pay a price when you stand up in your company as I have. They will 
do everything they can. They've opened my mail. They've put racist things in my office. They've stolen my deals and my commissions. They've hijacked my accounts. They've lied and they've cheated and they have misled. And I stayed and took it as a testimony against them. And when they threw me to the curb, I did not yell. I did not scream. I told them that I love them, as Jesus said, for I know they know not what they do. Men without moral authority. Men who cheat on their wives, who don't raise their children in righteousness, who brag about strip clubs in their Monday morning meetings and drunkenness and partying. When they prance around on their Christmas parties like they're in a strip club in Vegas. No regard for righteousness or holiness. There's a price to pay when you are one amongst them. There's a price to pay when you refuse to get down in the mud with them. And it's not just them. There's a price you'll pay. Even with those that you break bread with in the house of God that say that they love the Lord like you, though they wear crosses around their neck and say they love God. I have found those to be worse than the people I've worked with. Those who say they love God, they'll tell you, they'll pray for you. I've seen people without God step up quicker to help a hurting man than those with Bibles in their hands. No, they won't take for themselves. They won't sacrifice themselves. One mile too many is one mile too many. They're not a part of God's change order. But those of us who are, though they slay us, yet we will praise the Lord. We will worship God. He will not allow our enemies to gloat. They will have a moment. They'll throw the prophet in jail. They'll have a moment, but it'll be a moment. Trust in the Lord. Our redemption draweth nigh. God has not forgotten us. But we have to drink of the cup he drank of, and it's a bitter cup. It's not all smiles and jumps and Disneyland trips. Shouldn't be Disneyland at all. It's the price we pay. It is not the land, the happiest place on earth. It's the most hellish place. It isn't Disneyland. It's the Holy Land. It's the coming kingdom of the Messiah. It's not in Utah. Sorry, Mormons. It's not in India. Sorry, my Hindu Buddhist brothers. It's not in Mecca. Sorry, my Muslim brothers. Jerusalem. How I weep over you. Jerusalem. How I long to gather you in my arms. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of peace. Don't you worry. Fret not because of evildoers. In due time, God's going to make it right. I just want to be a part of that right. Whatever I can do to help somebody who's been pushed down, shoved down, kicked down, left down, Whatever I can do to help lift you up, 
whatever the cost, whatever the price, I couldn't pay one bigger or high enough. Let's be God's hands and feet on the earth. Let's be the lamps in our cities, in our companies. Don't be ashamed. I know it's hard. I know you're going to pay a price. I know it seems bitter. But joy comes in the morning. Hallelujah. Joy comes in the morning. i 